Have you guys ever got an email that was loaded? Just like you read it and it's paragraph upon paragraph upon paragraph and everything in the email is just loaded with content and you have to respond to everything. Some of you send those things via text message. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, but you get the email and then you have to respond and it's like you're writing a novel back and all of a sudden this email is just completely loaded with hard stuff that you wish you can talk about in person, but email seems to be the less passive aggressive way and, you know, you do it over email. Have we gotten those? Am I on my own right here? Have we all been a part of those? Okay. When you read Philippians chapter three, hi. Yeah, Joel does it. Uh, when you read... Um, when you read Philippians chapter 3, this is a loaded chapter. If it was email, Paul would be writing in all caps. He's yelling something. He wants this message to be taken and lived by and absorbed and applied. This is the heart of what he's getting at. In this book of Philippians, we've been looking at how to find joy in our trials, how to find joy when you're dealing with other people, because as we know, we would all be happy if it wasn't for these people, right? We'd be happier by ourselves, so we think. But Paul says, here's how you find joy amongst the crowd. Here's how you find joy with your community. And here he's dealing with something that comes in and starts to rob your joy, and he's addressing something in Philippians chapter 3. He's addressing two lies and one truth. And he brings forth the truth in the last part, which is why you told a lie and a truth today. So you're all liars. And we're going to see this. Okay. okay. All right. Here we go. Uh, if, if we look at this, the first lie that Paul wants to address in Philippians chapter 3 is the lie of what I've called that one extra step. Paul, Paul is addressing these people and he wants this church to not fall for something extra and he wants to expose these, these lies that might be coming into the church that would rob them of their joy. And so the first thing he says is watch out for the lie that tells you you have to do something more. Look in uh, Philippians 3 verse 1. Uh, uh, he says, finally my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these, the same things to you again. And it, is with, and it is a safeguard for you. And then in verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Now a dog, it's not like D-A-W-G, like go dogs. It's not D-O-double-G like Snoop. It's dog. And the word he uses is not a nice word to call somebody. A dog isn't in those days, wasn't those things that we spoil in our, in our homes, feed them what we eat and have them sleep in our beds. I don't understand why people do that. Uh, I've seen dogs with sweaters on. They're born with a sweater. Um, they don't need, I even saw dogs with shoes. I was like, really? Come on. It's a dog. Anyway, and some of you do that. That's fine. Do it. I, I, I will just chuckle at you um, quietly. But there's these, when he calls them dogs, he's not being nice here. Dogs in those days, when he says, watch out for those dogs, beware of the dog. When he says that, he's talking about these diseased-filled animals that linger outside the city walls that eat the dead carcasses. They're filled with anything you don't want is in that dog. And so he says, watch out for these dogs 
who are mutilators of the flesh. Now, when we hear that word flesh, instantly we think, oh, we're going to talk about sex, right? Or we're going to talk about, you know, fleshly things. But when Paul is talking about flesh, he's not talking about the things that we usually think of when we hear flesh. He's talking about flesh and blood, your skin, your life, everything about you. He says, watch out for these dogs who are out to destroy you. And in this context in Philippians, it's the meaty part of the book. He's coming to a head and he says, these dogs are out to make you feel less secure about your faith and your pursuit of Christ. These dogs were so big on ancestry. They would come in, they were called Judaizers in, other, in, in the context in Acts 15. They thought that if you, had to be a, if you wanted to be a true Christian, if you wanted to follow Christ and you were not born a Jew, you had to first become Jewish and then you would be into the full salvation. And for a male to become a Jew, you had to be baptized and Gentiles, non-Jews in that day, were uncircumcised. So if you're a grown man, you want to become a follower of Christ, you go talk to this person, he would say, great, become a Jew and then be circumcised, to which most guys would go, whoa, hold on. And it was, a, it was a deterrent for people coming to faith. This is something that was settled back in Acts 15. But these people were holding on to it. They took pride in being Jewish. They took pride in the sign of the covenant. Circumcision wasn't just some medical procedure. It was a sign of God's covenant back in Genesis. It set his people apart from everybody else. It goes back to Genesis 17 in verse 10. Uh, God says this to Abraham. This covenant with you and your descendants, and the covenant was, Abraham, I'm going to use your family to bless the entire world. That was the covenant. Your, your family will be as big as the, or as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sands on the seashore. Your family is going to bring forth the hope for the world. And so the covenant that Abraham lived into was to be circumcised, and the covenant you are to keep, every male among you will be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it'll be the sign between God and you. Every covenant that we make, even today, has a sign. When you get married, you are stepping into a covenant. What do we exchange as a sign of the covenant? Rings. Every covenant has a sign. In this covenant, back in Genesis, way back there, it was circumcision. And so these signs were a reminder. Now these Judaizers thought being Jewish is the best thing ever. And they can trace their lineage back to Abraham's sons. Because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. One person remembers that. Great. Jacob's sons, they were able to trace their lineage all the way back to Jacob. And it was exciting and it was good for them to do, but it was something that they took too much pride in. And they began to, to lead people astray in their faith saying, if you want to be a Christian, it is not enough for you simply to follow Jesus. You have to do one extra thing. And Paul looks at them and goes, no, 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 no. Don't fall for the lie of the one extra thing. Don't fall for the lie that the faith in Christ is not enough. Don't fall for it. They were saying that you had to follow both the law and then Jesus. And if you don't do this, in their minds, you were an unclean dog. 
that you were separate. You didn't belong in the church. And so when Paul says, beware of those dogs, he's flipping the phrase on them and saying, no, 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 they're the dogs. They're the ones who are out to rob you of your joy. They're the ones that are out to make you question everything about what Jesus has done for you. Beware of those people. He uses the word keon, which means that a person of an impure mind, not only are they dogs, he says, but they're so enamored with this circumcision idea that they are impure. In other words, they're so, uh, they, all they can think about is that, that their minds have gone away. It's not just dog, it's a sick dog. These people are gone. These people, don't associate with them. Don't listen to them. They see themselves as clean, Paul says, but they aren't the real ones that are clean. More than that, they're robbing you of your joy and stay away from them. Paul goes back to what he alluded to in, in Philippians 1.6. It says, God started a work in all of you. And he's going to be faithful and just to complete this work until the days when your eyes see his eyes face to face. That's what the joy comes from. And they were saying everything to these people to make them doubt what God had already said about them in, in, in verse one, chapter one, verse six. God, they, they're saying, Paul's saying, these people are going to make you think that God's not doing anything in you because you haven't done that extra thing. And because of Paul this, Paul says, beware of them. But look what he does in, in verse three. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision. We serve God by his spirit who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no, puts no confidence in the flesh. There are two words here. And then we could stop talking about circumcision. The first word is peritome, which means to cut around, which is the circumcision. If, if Google it later, it, it, to, to cut around. And then the other word he uses is the word katatome. If circumcision means to cut around, what he's accusing these other people of is katatome, which means to cut into pieces. So Paul is saying, we are the true circumcision. These other people are mutilators. They're taking the covenant that God made to bless the entire world, and they're chopping it up into a million pieces. They're mutilating it the sign that was God's reaching everybody, the sign of the covenant, and they're destroying it. Even further, they mutilate joy. So what's Paul say? If you put your, your, your hope in this kind of extra step, you're actually mutilating the joy that you would have. God has given the circumcision the sign of the covenant. And in, in Jeremiah, it says, now we have circumcised hearts where God has put his mark on our heart and our lives become the sign of the covenant. And they, Paul's saying they've taken this sign and thrown it out. Don't fall for it. Instead, don't, don't have joy in the extra step. And it goes back to verse one. Instead, rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, have joy five times up until this point. Have joy, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. This is the first time that he says rejoice, and then he says, in what? So he says rejoice. Now he says rejoice in Christ, not the extra step that, you have, that they're telling you you have to take. Rejoice that Christ's sacrifice is enough. He uses the word Lord, kairos, which is, is it's given to, to anybody who has power over everything. 
If you think that you can just have one extra step and they'll be fine, that person will fail you. But rejoice in Christ the Lord means that you're having your joy based in someone that doesn't fade. Someone to whom everything belongs, even you. So put your joy in the right place. The dogs were basing their joy in the flesh and Paul's warning to them is not to fall in the trap. Instead, build your joy on the person to whom everything truly belongs. And when you don't, Paul knows this well, when you base your joy in the flesh, the things that fade, the temporal, we get old, we get withered, we start to die off after a while. And if everything you do is based in that one extra step that you can take, then your joy will begin to fade as you begin to fade. Paul says, put your joy, what makes you truly happy and joyful inside, in the person who never fails you. Then you will be joyful, Paul says. There's a, a, a thing that, there's a story that illustrates this in the Old Testament. It's, it's David, and, and on his way back from fighting, he brings the, the men back, and they're coming back, and they've realized that as they were out battling for a long time, the Amalekites came in, and they destroyed their city, and they carried all their families off with them. And David says, that's it, we're going after them. We gotta get our families back. So they put on the horses and they, they chase after the Amalekites. They come to this place called Brook Bazor. And when they get there, there's some of the people who are exhausted from fighting. They could see the Amalekites out in front of them and they're exhausted and they say, we can't go on. And so David leaves them behind. They were called the resters. They stayed with the luggage. They stayed with all the plunder to guard and protect. And there was a bunch of other guys that went forward down to fight the Amalekites. David's men went down. They fought the Amalekites. They returned with their families and all the Amalekites' stuff. They looted them pretty good. And they come back with the riches. And their first instinct was to say, all of the stuff that we got was for us who fought. You didn't do the extra work, you resters, so you don't get the prize. David says, no, no, that's not how this works. Uh, if you look in 1 Samuel, it'll be on the screen. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us. He has delivered us into the hands of the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down into battle. All will share alike. This is the picture of the grace we get from Christ versus of the extra step that people are trying to do. We get grace not from having one extra step of things and accomplishments and creeds and Bible studies and sermon podcasts and whatever else that you think you have to do to make God pleased with you. We get grace from Christ alone. We're back resting. Christ goes to the cross. He rises again the third day. We share in the first fruits of that offering. It's sort of what happens with David in the brook Besor. Comes back and says, we inherit what Christ fought for us. We were resting. Christ did the work. We still get some of the prize. You don't have to do anything extra. It's not about how much we can do. It's how much Christ did. And that's the basis of the joy. And that's what Paul is warning these people. Don't fall for that lie that you have to do something else. The next lie that Paul wants you to be aware of is the lie that says there's nothing extra. 
So you have, to, you have the one side that says, you have to do all of these things. Check your boxes. Go to your small group. Do everything. And then there's the lie on the other side of the spectrum. It says, you don't have to do anything at all. Just, just chill out. Don't change. You can just be you. Just do you, man. Do what you got to do. And so this picks up in verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. For as I have often told you before and now, I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. This is the second warning and Paul is very emotional here. This is where the tears start to come. He's crying about this. They put Christ to shame. He says their God is their stomach. In other words, they do what feels good. Whatever they're hungry for at the moment, they serve their pleasures. Their pleasures are their gods. This is what they're after. The second one, he says, they glory in their shame. Have you ever met somebody that's so excited about something that they did that was completely wrong? This is what they're glory in. They take glory in doing wrong, in doing shameful acts that are dishonorable. Their mind is on earthly things. This means they do these things and, and they never acknowledge that there might be a God out there that has something to say about how they live. So their mind is on the earthly things. The first lie is you don't have to earn it. And the lie that these people are telling the people of Philippi is that you don't do anything after you've received it. That your faith stops with just a one-time decision. And Paul exposes this lie because the call of Christ that we all answer to isn't meant to be this pain-free journey. It isn't meant just to say, I got my bus ticket, now I'm just going to sit on the bus and do whatever I want uh, and just wait to die and go to heaven. That's not what the faith of Paul, and that's not the faith of Paul that he's trying to get us to follow. Paul will say in verse 10 that we participate in the sufferings of Christ, and if anybody can get this, Paul gets it. He's sitting in a Roman jail cell at this moment. He's participating in sufferings. Paul understands what Jesus said in Matthew 16. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your ways, your selfish ways, take up your Christ, take up your cross, and follow me. Take up your Christ too, I guess. You can't add to Christ's grace. You can't earn it. But because of Christ's grace, we will be changed which means parts of us, parts of our lives will need to go away and other parts will need to begin to start to flourish. We must be transformed to Christ, growing to become more like him. Paul says in John chapter, or John says in John 3, he must be greater and I must become less. Greater to journey to know God more. This is what he's doing. He wants to know God, be transformed by him. There's a trajectory in our faith, a trajectory that always begins someplace, whether that was at camp, whether that was on Easter one day, whether it was like me on the living room floor with my mom and dad. Your faith begins somewhere, but it always is moving towards someone. You start where you are, but you're moving to become more and more like Christ in every aspect of your being which means there are some things that you have to let go of in order to be changed to become more like Christ. When we don't, we stop the movement and our faith becomes stagnant. The call of Christ is a journey that's going somewhere. 
Philippians 3 says the, uh, the, the movement is towards maturity. It's towards growing into the reality and that is a byproduct of, of chasing him. The work of the spirit leads to the change inside of us that changes the way we live outside of us. The lies come in and says there's freedom in Christ, meaning that you don't have to do anything. You can stay exactly the way you are. There's no such thing as sin anymore. You can just be. Paul says in verse 20, we are eagerly awaiting the Savior that enables us, enables him to bring everything under his control, and we will transform our bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The lie says you don't have to go anywhere. The truth says no, we are changing to become more and more like Jesus. Your joy is found in your transformation. I look at my son Judah, he's two. He's getting that little whine <laughs> and, and, and he's, he's starting to grow up. Now, if Judah were to stay this tall and never progress past that whine, would something be wrong? Yes. I hope so, because that wine is annoying. <laughs> but there is a progression to life. You're born, you grow, you become more and more like a human being. You, you, become, you can have conversations. This is the trajectory of life. In your relationships, you start by dating someone. Maybe it's a, a casual dating. And then if it doesn't go progress that, to something, you'll be casually dumped. There's a progression to life. There's a progression to everything. You put a seed in the ground, it grows and matures into a plant, hopefully. I'm not very good at doing that. But theoretically, these things grow, things start, and then they progress. It's no different with our faith. Start somewhere. It doesn't matter where you begin. You don't have to be perfect. Jesus loves you the way you are. But, the writers say, refuses to leave you the way you are. There's things about you that he wants to make more and more like him. That's the transformation process. We become more like Christ. There's a strain in the faith that says, I can just go to church on Sunday, I can say the prayer, and keep on doing whatever I'm doing. Keep on, uh, as the scripture says, sinning. Doesn't matter, I could just ask for forgiveness. But in scriptures, in Paul's writings, there's a difference. Things will progress. There's some things that go away, and there's things that get bigger. Paul says, Don't fall for the first lie. Don't fall for there's nothing that that that, that nothing you have to do. Don't fall for the lie that says there's everything you have to do. And then he tells us the truth. The truth is this that we may know Christ, which is the goal. You know him. It's the Greek word gnosko, which means to know in a relational context. It means to continue to grow in knowledge. It's you know the person, but it is an ongoing knowledge that keeps on growing and growing and growing. Eventually, you will know more and more and more. According to Paul, this was his purpose. And according to Paul, it should be ours. 
as humans, we, we want plans, right? We want everything marked out. We want to know what we're going to have for lunch today. And then we want to know what we're going to do for dinner. We want plans for the week. And then some, I do this often, we stick by the plans. Nothing can get us away from the plan. We feel secure in plans, right? Am I alone in this? We want to know the plan. We want to know what God's going to do for us because the Jeremiah 29 verse that really is not for us says God knows the plans he has for Israel. God knows plans for you, but he has a deeper thing for you. For you, he has a purpose. Purposes are better than plans. I have a purpose. And in thy purpose, I might have plans to get me through my purpose. And if my plans fail, my purpose is still there. I might have a purpose to run around Green Lake. And when I stop, I'm not running, but my purpose is to complete it. You see what I mean? Your purpose never changes. Your plans might adapt, but your purpose stays the same. And Paul says, this is our purpose, that we might know Christ that we might become more and more like him. The plans, sure, those will shift. The purpose remains the same. We keep moving. Paul has a purpose. Look in verse 12, here's more of it. I press on and take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. There's no plan there. Paul had to change change his plans and ended up in Philippi. He had plans to go to, to Asia. Paul changed his plans. His purpose was to share Christ. It didn't go according to his plan, but he ended up in Philippi. His purpose remained the same. Paul says he's pressing on to what he was created for. That is is what is sustaining him in the middle of the Roman jail cell. Not his plans. Does anyone ever plan to go to prison? Not even the guilty ones. They don't plan to go to prison Paul's purpose is that he might share Christ, that he presses on to take hold of, what, of that for which Christ took hold of me. And then he says again, not that I already have obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I still press on. He hasn't obtained it. In other words, he hasn't arrived at the finish line. Paul's using a sports metaphor for all of those who hate sports metaphors. Here's Paul using one. He's running a race. He's pushing himself. His purpose is to finish the race. He's moving forward. He's still pressing forward to take hold of Christ who has taken hold of him. Do we see the double meaning that Paul is going for? He's reaching, he's grasping to take a hold of Jesus to become more and more like him. That's his purpose. When Paul uses the first word, to take hold, it's, the word is catalambano, which sounds like a cool dance, but it's not. It's a word that means to grasp or to reach for something. So he's reaching, he's catalambanoing for Jesus, to be like Jesus. And then when he says that Christ has already taken hold of him, it's the same word. He's reaching for Jesus. Jesus has already gotten him. Jesus has Paul by the shoulder, and Paul is straining for more. It's a good thing. Paul already has all the grace he needs because Jesus has taken hold of him. But it hasn't stopped him in becoming more and more like Jesus. 
Do you see this? Does it make sense? It's the same word, and that's the point. He later says in verse 16, only let us live up to that which we have already attained. We have it. We have the grace that we need. We have Jesus. Now, let's live into the grace that we already have. It's a concept uh, called eschatological realism, which is really fun to impress people. Uh, and we've, I've talked about it before, but eschatological means end times, things that are in the future. Realism means right now, or the reality of now. So you have eschatological, things that are true about you in the future are things that are true about you now. You are fully possessed by Jesus he has you in his hands. You have all the grace that you need. Now, live into it. Live like you don't have to earn it anymore. The pressure is off of you. You don't have to impress. You don't have to do more things. Now you get to enjoy it. In 2008, I bought a house in California, a condo. I was nervous. I'd never bought anything that big. And it was like this permanency thing. And I, I used to have a fear of commitment. That was one of the things that got me off of my fear of commitment, that and a couple tattoos. Those things don't go away. And so I, I, I signed the papers. I had never seen an amount that big with my name under it saying I'm going to pay this thing. And I'm terrified. I sign it. I move in. The whole thing was tied to, this was the place where uh, Carrie, Carrie and I were still dating. We weren't engaged. Uh, this was the place where I was hoping that Carrie and I could live after we got married. And there was this plan in my head. I didn't tell her any of this, which was probably a bad idea. Uh, and that led to a couple arguments along the way. But this was, this was where I was going to live. Now, what would it have been like if I signed the papers I mail in the down payment or whatever it was back then, and then I never moved into the house. I stayed at my parents. What would that have been like? Pretty stupid, right? Here I'm paying a mortgage, and I'm not living in the house. No one's living in the house. It's going empty. The point of owning a house is that you move in. You hang things on the wall, you cook dinner, you have friends over, you watch the Super Bowl, you do things in the house, you decorate, you sleep there, you shower there, you do everything there. That's the point of home. I had bought this home, it was mine, fully owned it, but never moved in. Silly. This is what we do with grace. Christ has possessed you, he has you in the palm of his hands. You have all the grace you can ever need. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you more. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you less. You are loved completely and wholly. All of every parts of your uh, mess ups and your hang ups and your sins, he doesn't care. He takes you in. You might smell rotten and he's not worried about getting any of the stink on him. He loves you completely and wholly. All you now have to do is live like you've been loved completely and wholly. The weight is off of you. It's true about you in the future. It's true about you now. Live like you're loved 
like you actually are. You don't have to earn it. You're not going to lose it. This is the warning that Paul wants us to get a hold of. It's nothing extra, but live like you live up to the grace in which you've been given. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you love us completely. You love us wholly. There's nothing we can do that will ever take that away from us. And so, Lord, may you give us the courage and strength to live like we're loved already, to enjoy your grace, to enjoy your favor, and then to reach after you because you've reached after us and you possess us. And so, God, allow us to, to experience your grace today. 